0: Grace mercy and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. 40,963. 40,963. That's the capacity of Minute Maid Stadium, home of the Houston Astros Major League Baseball team. Some of you probably knew that already. And last month, we reached out we reached about half of that capacity at some 20,000-plus Lutheran youth and youth workers who filed into this state-of-the-art air-conditioned and architecturally awarded arena in downtown Houston. People came from the East and West, North and South, globally speaking, all for the 14th Triennial Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Youth Gathering. These events go all the way back to 1980. This year was quite a memorable experience for our peace youth who went, and you can read their reactions to this experience and check out a few photos, too, in our current Words of Peace newsletter, the summer edition that's online right now and may still even be in your email inbox. There are a few hard copies lying around, church that can also be found, as well as a viewable copy on our patio on the What's Happening board, right next to the donuts. So grab a donut, some coffee, and check out what our youth say there in their own words about that experience at the National Youth Gathering. But I really didn't put on this caller this morning to report on the National Youth Gathering, or for that matter to mention the Houston Astros in the presence of so many of our dedicated Dodger fans who still remember 2017's World Series. And to you, I give this friendly reminder, the Lord says we must love our enemies. (laughs) Joking aside, I really only mention the youth gathering because it actually bears on our gospel reading today. You see that mass gathering in Houston, the tens of thousands of young pilgrims seeking the kingdom of God, that whole picture provides a useful illustration for what Jesus is talking about today. Let's look at our gospel passage, verse 29. Jesus says, and people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Okay, we didn't recline at tables upon entering Minute Maid Park, but on our last day of the youth gathering, we did come to the Lord's table, and we all partook, all 20,000 of us partook together of the Lord's Supper. Talk about a foretaste of the feast to come. It's that experience of having Holy Communion en masse that usually leaves the biggest visual and spiritual impact on our youth. And this is partly because in their everyday routine back at home here at school, or even as they look around church, they indeed look around and easily get the impression that there just aren't very many practicing Christians their own age. But one look around Minute Maid Stadium or wherever the gathering happens to be held any particular year, just one look and wow, they say, this must be what heaven is like, but on an even grander scale. A grander scale indeed For a more accurate picture of the heavenly throng, you'd have to take Minute Maid Park with its 20,000 plus Lutheran youth gathered there and now multiply that by some 100,000 more arenas around the world to uh, even get close to the scene that St. John describes in Revelation. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, from Revelation 7-9. If you do the math I suggested, 20,000 times 100,000, you still will only arrive at the estimated total number of Christians who are alive today in this 21st century. That would be just over 2 billion, as most sources estimate. 2 billion. Who knows how many more millions or even billions possibly of glorified saints are actually gathered around heaven's throne from all the previous centuries going back 20 centuries now. And that's not even counting the angels and archangels we customarily allude to in our preface to communion and which includes all the company of heaven. This is what Jesus was getting at when he talks about people coming from every corner of the earth to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, but the whole discourse that Jesus gives in today's gospel reading might at points sound a little confusing or even contradictory. Am I right? Sure, Jesus talks about a lot of people coming into the kingdom. But he also says, strive to enter the narrow gate. And he adds... Many will seek to enter, but will not be able to, verse 24. So how do you square this narrow door that is about to be sealed shut with what Luke records Jesus saying just a couple of chapters earlier, where Jesus says, I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you, Luke eleven nine. Knock, knock. With many knocking in verse twenty five of today's reading, uh, these folks that we see there are shut down and they are shut out. So how do you square these two seemingly contradictory statements by our Lord? Is the door shut or open? Is it for many or for few? Well, let me start to address that by saying two things. First of all, good question. Secondly, is this the first time Jesus' teachings fall upon confused ears? I don't think so. No, whether we're talking about confused first century disciples or confused 21st century disciples, Jesus does seem to have a peculiar way of shaking up our earthly way of looking at things, doesn't he? In fact, he does this fairly often, especially when it comes to our understanding of and our expectations for the kingdom of God. Our darkened reasoning just needs time to adjust to his enlightening words. I had a Bible teacher once years ago who put it this way. Beware. Beware when people tell you they are ready to learn. They are really just rearranging their prejudices. So with the Lord's help to not do that. Let's take another look at this week's text from the top then because we sort of first jumped into it towards the bottom. At the top of today's gospel reading, verse 22, we read this. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Journeying. Bible scholars call this section of Luke's gospel appropriately the travel narrative. It starts in chapter 9, verse 51, which says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke 9, 51. Everything we read in this travel section then, leading up to his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in chapter 19, it all must be understood with this backdrop of Jesus setting his course to take up his cross in obedience to his Father in heaven, in order to unlock heaven's gates for us all. Now it's access granted. Now the author of Hebrews can offer us believers this encouragement. Let us therefore now boldly approach the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. From Hebrews 4.16. Thanks to Jesus you can boldly pray just as it says there. Jesus' reconciling work on the cross is further vindicated by God's raising him from the dead on the third day. That's kind of important too, isn't it? For obvious reasons, and one of these reasons we'll discuss in just a few moments more. Back to our gospel lesson, after reminding us of Jesus' cross being the proper backdrop for this whole section Luke next sets up the context of our lesson today. Verse 23. And someone said, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Well, it was probably an act of mercy on the part of the Holy Spirit who did not inspire Luke to record the name of this anonymous question asker here in verse 23 because it saves him or her the embarrassment of being named and known down through all church history as the wrong question asker. That would be almost as bad as doubting Thomas being stuck with his nickname till the end of the age. Oh, most of us probably like this question asked by the wrong question asker. It's kind of awkward, isn't it? Not too catchy. But we may have asked this very same question ourselves or something like it regarding the relative population of heaven versus hell. And wouldn't you like to read that? Like on a population elevation sign, like the kind you see when you enter a new city? We know the elevation of hell wouldn't be much, now would it? But they might make up for that with their population total. Let's hope not too much. That, by the way, is very American to want to know the bottom line figures for things. Just give me the numbers, we say. But Jesus apparently didn't have time to scratch that kind of speculative itch. Remember, Jesus was on his way to die, and he wanted to make the most of every interaction on his one-way trip that he was on here. So Jesus shifts the question to something much more pressing something much more important, he turns it back on this asker. Instead of, will the saved be few, Jesus asks, will the saved be you? Where do you stand before God? That's a more pressing question worth asking oneself. To further dignify this more personal question, Jesus adorns it now with one of his parables, the parable of the narrow door or narrow gate, as it is sometimes called. Strive, Jesus says. Strive to enter through that narrow door. Jesus starts out here with a very strong word, a word that might itself even cause some confusion among us. The word strive is sometimes rendered, make every effort. In Greek, the word is agonizomai, from which we get our word agonize. That's a strong word, especially since we know Jesus himself is on his way to suffer in agony on the cross. And there's plenty of agony building up to a cross as well. The form of the word used here literally means keep on agonizing to enter through the narrow door. Now, can you guess why this word, strive then, might in itself cause some confusion for us? Who subscribe holy to sola gratia. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. When Jesus tells us to agonize over entering then, it kind of makes it sound like there's some strenuous level up here of human effort that we must exert in order to achieve our place in the kingdom of God. But that understanding simply flies in the face of everything our Lord has taught and showed us regarding the way of salvation by grace through faith. For example, here's one of the most famous Bible verses in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Of course, John 3.16 there. And in that same gospel, there were those inquirers who came right up to Jesus and asked him point blank, what must we do? to be doing the works of God. Jesus answered him, saying, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent, from John 6. Believe is the key word here. Believe as in have faith in or trust in. Of course, these terms on their own only beg the question, don't they? Believe in what? Where should I place my faith? And in whom should I trust for my eternal destiny. And this is right where we circle back to our Lord Jesus Christ rising from the dead. How could we securely place our trust in anyone else for our own life after death? Faith is only as good as the object in which it's placed. Nobody else, not Buddha, not Muhammad, Gandhi, Moses, any TV preacher, no Nobel Prize-winning scientist, no world leader, philosopher, or philanthropist, none of these have ever conquered death, not to mention conquering our other age-old enemies of sin and the devil. No one but Jesus of Nazareth, that is. Jesus alone, then, is the one worthy of all our faith and trust. He alone conquered our enemies. Jesus first journeyed to earth from heaven and became man so that he could also journey to the cross in Jerusalem and give his sinless life as a ransom for many, all your sins and mine. And so many, 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 that is to say everybody is invited to his heavenly banquet. We are invited to be forgiven as well as to come and to eat for free, free lunch. The ransom price he has already paid in full. And for now, the gate still stands wide open to all who would call upon his name, like that thief on the cross next to him during crucifixion. And many will come, Jesus says, from the east, the west, the north, the south, but they cannot enter just any old gate. I am the gate, Jesus claims in John 10, 9. As if Jesus wasn't already being exclusive enough, a little later in that same gospel, he comes out with, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. This kind of claim and the faith in it today is seen as both scandalous and antagonistic. It offends people. In our current cultural climate, it opens the door to our own derision and persecution. But this is where the agony is really found, not in any vain attempt on our part to merit heaven by the good works we muster; rather, we are to strive in the face of personal attacks and opposition. We strive to keep our faith intact for a lifetime. Endure suffering with Jesus as our model. Agonize in prayer over ways to reach our neighbor before the Lord returns and the gate has, uh, when while the gate has still been left open, but it's going to close. And when it closes, it'll be shut forever. Will it be before the eyelids of those loved ones who don't know Christ before they close those in death? Jesus wants us to sense the urgency here of the situation while still keeping a cool head in all situations. Like he said, when it's closing time, many will bring their excuses to the gatekeeper, only to be told, I don't know where you're coming from. If they are not coming from a place of repentance and faith, Jesus doesn't recognize them. I don't know where you come from, he'll say. Luther's insights on what is true faith then are helpful here. Here's Luther. For even though you know that Jesus is God's son, that he died and rose again, and that he sits at the right hand of God the Father, you have not yet learned to know Christ aright until you also believe that he did all this for your sake in order to help you. Jesus wants you to know his love and forgiveness personally. This is one reason why we offer the sacrament of the altar here every week that is either at this service or at the service down below because we want your hearts to be convinced of the for you part of the equation. He died for you. He offers forgiveness of sins to you. He grants you eternal life in his name. Salvation is found in no one else, Peter once told a hostile audience in Acts chapter 4. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. Let's take that good news and fill a few more arenas, shall we? Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.